are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. The teaching text this morning comes from the letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Today we will be continuing our study of Galatians 5. As a church, we have been taking the past few weeks to deep dive on this seminal chapter in Paul's writing to the Galatians. That this, the letter to the Galatians is, as scholars argue, one of the most important letters in Paul's kind of corpus, understanding the gospel. And so it's important for us then to really understand this, especially Galatians 5, where almost like the entire book hinges on the turn in this chapter. And so before we dive into what Paul is saying to the Galatians, we, I think it's good to put some things in context for us. And actually, to do that, I'm actually going to read you a brief excerpt from the great Russian novel, Crime and Punishment. This is from the first chapter, and, you know, spoiler alert, though this thing has been around for a few hundred years, so it's kind of on you. So Raskolnikov went out in complete confusion. This confusion became more and more intense. As he went down the stairs, he even stopped short two or three times, as though suddenly struck by some thought. When he was in the street, he cried out, oh God, how loathsome it all is, and can I, can I possibly, no. It's nonsense. It's rubbish, he added resolutely. And how could such an atrocious thing come into my head? What filthy things my heart is capable of. Yes, filthy above all, disgusting, loathsome, loathsome. And for a whole month I've been, but no words, no exclamations could express his agitation. The feeling of intense repulsion, which had begun to oppress and torture his heart while well, he was on his way to the old woman, had by now reached such a pitch and had taken, taken such a definite form that he did not know what to do with himself to escape his wretchedness. If you're unfamiliar with Dostoevsky's crime and punishment, it chronicles a young man, a bro, uh, broke, penniless student living in Russia. And in the beginning of the book, right, so we're kind of right where we are in this quotation, He's having this dilemma, this, this moral dilemma, because for weeks now, he has been contemplating murder. And so 
there was this old woman, a pawnbroker, whom he sold things to. And so in the, in, the, in, the, in the book, he begins to formulate an idea. What if I were to take her out and take what she has? It starts as an idea. It starts as like an intrusive thought. But as the weeks go on and as circumstances align, he begins to rationalize more and more the idea of killing this woman and taking her for what she has. Like I said, spoiler alert, he eventually kills her and her sister and takes the money, thinking the money could help liberate him from his poverty. And he goes on and, and to go on to perform great deeds. And throughout the book, throughout the novel, he's con- trying to convince himself that his crimes are justifiable. And we see at work here a war going on between what he perceives to be good and how he's justifying his wrong. In this first kind of excerpt, we see the beginnings of Raskolnikov's wrestling, the beginnings of this tension that he has within himself, these desires he has that almost feel like they're not his. He's always had this out-of-body experience. And what he's saying, how could this come for me? How could these thoughts arise in me? How can I be capable of such thought? And what Dostoevsky, what he does brilliantly through all his writings, is he gives us a picture of the human heart. That within all of us is the capacity, whether we like to believe it or not, for great evil, for great suffering, for great pain. And what he does is he paints his portrait of here's this young man faced with a moral dilemma, and the question is, will he give in to his better angels? And he doesn't. And the reason I wanted to read this excerpt, because it describes for us quite succinctly what Paul means when he talks about the flesh. This capacity, this this bent towards fallenness, this, this bent towards sin and death and destruction that almost seems like it does not come from ourselves at times. We know this experientially. Have you ever had that moment where you're, you're, you're faced with a situation, you know the right thing to do, but you're surprised at how easily you'd lean toward the wrong thing? How, how you're surprised at your willingness maybe to justify what you thought was unjustifiable? This is what it means to wrestle with the flesh. It's that. The flesh is that which is our capacity for evil. The, the, the result of the fall are, are, are bent towards brokenness. And for Paul, this is the thing at present in all of us. Now, when Paul talks about flesh, as we've mentioned a few weeks ago, Gemma mentioned this, that Paul's not talking about necessarily about the body, our human bodies. He's talking more of a spiritual disposition. He's talking more about that which wages war against what is good. In talking to the Galatians, it seems like this was something they were wrestling with. You see, the Galatians were from a pagan society. They were used to a certain way of living. They had justified a certain way of living. And now that part of themselves was rearing its ugly head. When Paul goes on later in this, and we'll get to this point in the, in the chapter, when he goes off to list off that list of sins, what he calls the, the works of the flesh, Paul's not just listing random things he thought to be wrong. He's listing things that the Galatians most likely had struggled with, or we're continuing to struggle with. And now these Galatians who are followers of Jesus are now wrestling with the reality that their flesh is still at work within them. 
that despite their radical conversion to King Jesus, there was still this capacity for brokenness, for darkness. There was still this capacity to turn to their pagan ways. We have to imagine it's quite difficult maybe to live in a pagan city, in a pagan society, and, and resist. The temples were still there. The temple prostitutes were still there. The, the old way of living was still present and amongst them, and they found themselves at war within themselves, wrestling. How do I remain faithful to Jesus? That is the problem of the flesh. That is what we all face. And so, it's no wonder the law looks so appealing. See, we've been mentioning this group throughout this sermon series called the Judaizers, which was a, a, a Christian religious sect that believed that faithfulness to Jesus was expressed in faithfulness to the Torah. In other words, here was their doctrine in summary. Jesus saved you, but the Torah will sustain you. Jesus redeemed you, but the works of the law will sanctify you. And so this is the doctrine they're preaching to the Galatians. And so for a people who are fighting with all their might to resist the draw of their flesh, to resist the draw of the society they once lived in, it's no wonder the law looks appealing. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of an extremist in my personality. Like when I take on a new hobby, I take it fully on. I buy all the stuff I don't need. I get all the books. I do all the research. I, I, I'm like, that's just how I am. It's my bent. It's, it's how when I dive into things, I dive in at the deep end. There's no waiting for me. I remember early in the pandemic, like everyone else had picked up a hobby. And so I, I started like getting into film photography. And I just started buying things. I didn't know much about it, but like I'd read all these articles and these are all the equipment they said I need. So I just started like going on this eBay f frenzy, just buying up things. Why? Because our, my capacity is towards extremism. But I think humans, I think that's all our capacity at times spiritually. That when we notice something in ourselves that we don't like, we, we dive in the deep end, we listen to all the podcasts, we read all the books, we do all the things. Why? Because we're desperate to try to change. It's no wonder the law is appealing to the Galatians. Imagine you, you depart this radical pagan society that's antithetical to the way of Jesus, and here are these men coming saying, hey, listen, we know you're struggling. We got the easy way out. Adopt this radical, extreme form of living, and you will be saved. It sounds really good. Here are the boxes you have to tick. Here are the disciplines you have to embrace, and you can guarantee, as long as you remain faithful, you can guarantee your salvation. What Jesus did for them was the start of the journey, but there was still another portion of the journey. They needed to adopt these things. And so for people wrestling with, the, with their former pagan lives, this is really appealing. It's appealing to us as a culture. It's appealing to each of us individually that if I, someone could just give me the 10-step the process to secure my standing in Jesus, sign me up, where's the book, where can I listen? Because freedom is far more daunting. Freedom in Jesus is far more complex. In a gray world, we prefer black and white. We prefer yes or no. There's these funny, there's these memes that go around sometimes 
And it's like this picture of like this pastor sitting with someone and the, the, someone would say something audacious and the pastor's like, yeah, technically not a sin, but still weird, right? Like we want that level of clarity. I, I've been a pastor for a number of years now and I've had conversation with people. They'll say, Ryan, listen, like, I, I just want to confess a bit here. Ryan, you see, the other day, I, I decided to spend a few hundred dollars on a Lego collection. This is a, a, it, amazing. He was also, you know, like 40 with, with three kids. So there was this sense of, it wasn't for his kids, it was for him. And he's like, Ryan, is, is that wrong? Is that a sin? It's like, no. You have a really intense hobby maybe, but it, it's not a sin. But like, his, his concern was like, but... Just give me the black and white. Tell, tell me where I'm wrong here. It's like, well, it's, I told him something you have to discern for yourself. He said, no, 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 you have to tell me. But often the Christian life doesn't work like that. Freedom is far more daunting. We want easy. We want steps. We want process. We want disciplines. And that's exactly what the Galatians wanted. Because it seems obvious. If I'm struggling with my flesh, I need things to curb it. If I'm struggling with self-control, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m., I'm going to get on my knees and pray, I'm going to read the Bible six times a day, and then I won't do that thing anymore. It seems pretty easy. It seems pretty obvious. But the only issue with that is that the law was only a stopgap. The law was only a half measure. See, according to Orthodox priest Father Andrew Jarmus, he says, the law of Moses is to the gospel of Christ what an EMT is to a doctor. EMTs are amazing. They get on the scene. They stabilize you. But then they don't just leave you there. They take you and they bring you to a hospital where you can receive the thorough care you need. The law was only meant as a stopgap. The law was meant to sustain the people of God until that time in which the law was fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. And so it would be the equivalent of getting, getting hurt, having an EMT come to you, bandaging you up, knowing there's some internal bleeding somewhere and saying, you're good to go. That was the law. But the law was never the end goal. See, the law, the only issue with the law was that the law was dependent on human effort. And so, while the law looks appealing, while it seems like the easy answer, all the law can ultimately do is shine a light on the flesh. And eventually, when it comes between the law and the flesh, the flesh wins out because we don't have enough willpower to will our sanctification. We don't have enough willpower to will our holiness. We don't have it within us to be those people we want to be because at the end of the day, for all our strict observance, the flesh slowly begins to appear. And so the question Paul is really wrestling with is, how do you actually then deal with the flesh? How do you actually curb its appetites? It's here we get one of the most, almost clearest formulations of sanctification in Scripture. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Paul here is almost in the vein of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. And if you ever read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would quote the law, then he would say, but I say unto you, Paul is using the same formulation. He said, I know the Judaizers said this, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Paul's acknowledging that the only way to deal with the flesh is to walk in the Spirit. That the only way to curb the flesh's desires, the only way to deal with the, with the, with the desires and the, the, the leanings of the flesh is to embrace the Spirit. That there's a war going on inside, inside of every believer. There's a war between the spirit and the flesh. And one can give into either one or the other. But if you do, just know you cannot serve both. That's why he says in earlier in the chapter, he says, Hey, listen, walk in the spirit for you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. In other words, the flesh and the spirit can't live in tandem. They can't live in relationship. We can't have our cake and eat it too. The flesh, if we're going to give in to the flesh, then we can't do what the spirit says. And if we're going to give in to the spirit, we, we definitely can't do what the flesh says. We can either listen to one or the other. And Paul's saying, this is the dilemma, and you must choose. Will you walk by the spirit? or you gratify the desires of the flesh. Trying to both, to do both, eventually only leads to compromise and destruction. And yet for many of us, this feels like our Christian experience. We're trying to listen to the spirit, but there's those moments where we still give into the flesh, still go back to those things, still dabble in those, those relationships that we maybe shouldn't and those practices maybe we should have put away. And we try to live, we think if we get more strict, and we, get, we put more stop gaps on us, if we, if we wrap enough bandages around the wound, that that will stop the bleeding. But Paul says, no, it's either one or the other, spirit or flesh, you decide. And so, what does it mean then to walk in the spirit? St. Clement of Alexandria says this, he says, we who are baptized have wiped off the sins which obscure the light of the divine spirit and have the eyes of the spirit free, unimpeded and full of light by which we alone contemplate the divine, the Holy Spirit flowing down to us from above. In other words, what Clement is saying is that the flesh is like this dirt on our eyes that obscure our vision. If we read the story of Paul, Paul is well aware of having something in your eyes that obscured your vision. He had, when, when he encountered the risen Christ, something like scales fell from his eyes. And so the flesh becomes this thing that distorts our vision. The flesh becomes this thing that, that, that seals us off from the light of God. To walk in the spirit then is to remove those things from our vision, to, to uncloud that which is cloudy, to, to push past the fog and into the light, and then live in the light. That is Paul's response to the Judaizers, that the law cannot do what only the Spirit can do. That if to truly resist the flesh and be free from its temptations and to be free from its work, one must wipe off the grime from one's eyes and gaze into the divine light of God and pursue it and live it 
as a reality. The Spirit can do what the law cannot, which is finally put to death the flesh. To substitute the Spirit for the law would be to go backwards. And ironically, it would be to end up right where they started. See, Paul curiously calls things like sexual immorality, licentiousness, drunkenness, dissensions, divisions. He calls these the works of the flesh. And if you were to read Galatians as a whole, you'd come to understand that this phrase hasn't come out of thin air. See, earlier in Galatians 2, Paul talks about the works of the law. And so there's this subtle connection between the works of the flesh and the works of the law, as if to say those who try to live out the law for their sanctification, those who try to live out the law to be justified before God, will eventually give in to the works of the flesh. Because trying to work out, trying to work out your own sanctification by what you do eventually leads you to produce that thing which you didn't want to do in the first place. That is the great irony. That we think the law inhibits the flesh, it actually frees the flesh. See, the flesh thrives on the law. Because the law can't actually save, it can't actually redeem. It can point out the problem, but that's about it. And so when these Galatians are trying to follow the Torah, they're, they're getting circumcised, they're trying to do all these things, the great irony is, is that now there's dissension among them. And now there's divisions. And now people are, are responding and they're reacting against the law and actually sliding further into, the, into that immorality they tried to leave behind. All because they tried to follow the law. This is the great paradox. This is the great dilemma. That by trying to work and do and rather than be and abide, we actually end up producing the things we're trying to avoid. It's often why, and if you, you, maybe you know this experientially, but this is also both anecdotally and through study, that it's often why you see a, a, a tight correlation between legalism and sin. You know, if you grew up in a, in, a, in a church circle where there was lots of legalism, the great irony a lot of the times in those circles is there's also a lot of hidden sin. Why? Because trying to relegate your salvation through what you do only can produce lifelessness, only can produce death. The law can only shine the light on the problem. It can't actually solve it. So by trying to use it as the stopgap, by trying to use the EMT like a doctor, you end up dead. And so the law cannot take on the flesh and actually those living under the works of the law will inevitably, inevitably produce the works of the flesh. And so this is the problem. What can curtail the flesh? What can, as Paul says, beat it into submission? How do we die daily if that's the call of following Jesus? If, if it's not the law, then what? And so this is where we have to understand something about Paul's theology. See, Paul's theology is informed by Greek grammar. 
See, in the Greek, there's these two tenses, the indicative tense and the imperative tense. When something, a word is in the indicative tense, it's referring to a state of being, something that already is, and refers to things that are real or certain, in other words, an objective fact. The imperative refers to a command, something that must be done. And so what Paul begins to do is he begins to use these types of, this type of language to make theological points. We're actually going to do a little, little verse study just to point this out to you. So in Galatians 5.1, the first verse we read for this series, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. For a moment, you don't got to say it out loud. Where's the indicative and where's the imperative in the verse? Well, if we look closely, the indicative is in that first line, Christ has set us free. In other words, Paul's referring to a state of being. He's, a, he's referring to a certain fact. Christ has set us free. Then the indicative. What's the indicative? Well, it's the command. Stand firm. Do not let yourselves be burdened again. In other words, in Paul's theology, act being who we are our identity precedes action, what we do. In other words, what for Paul says, because Christ has done this for you, because you're a new creation, because the old has gone and the new has come, because you're filled with the Spirit, you can do X. You can resist temptation. You can flee from evil. You can walk in step with the Spirit. Because Christ has set you free, you get to stand firm. The indicative comes before the imperative. Who you are becomes, becomes before what you do. Your being precedes your action. And the Judaizers were flipping this on its head. They were saying, and this is what the law says, your action dictates your being. That you must do in order to become. That you must act and obey in order to be. That is the law versus the gospel. The gospel says, because of Christ, what Christ has done, this is who you are, so now you can do. The law says, you must do so you can become worthy of who you are. That's actually the common parlance of our culture. That what we do defines who we are. Rather than who we are defines what we do. And so what Paul is saying here, in order to beat the flesh, in order to, to put it to death, you must understand two fundamental concepts. That who you are in Christ is already decided. It is a certain fact. It is an objective reality. You are forgiven and redeemed and set free and called forth from darkness and a new creation and a son of God and a daughter of God and a co-heir with Christ and sanctified and justified and will be glorified. These are certain realities and facts that belong to you. And because of that, you can resist temptation. Because of that, you can flee from what is evil and love what is good. Because of that, you can love your neighbor as yourself. Because of that, you are a peacemaker. Because of that reality, you can act as one 
who's in alignment with God. But the law was telling the Galatians something different. It was saying, get circumcised, eat kosher, do this, do that, and then you'll be an heir, and then you'll be sanctified, and then you'll be redeemed, and then you'll ultimately be saved. And see, in that paradigm, the flesh always wins out. Because in that paradigm, we're missing something incredibly important. The only thing that can resist the flesh, which is the spirit. And now when Paul's talking here, he's not talking about your spirit or your soul or your will or your ability to muster up a good deed. He's talking about the active power and presence of God. See, the spirit that's at war with the flesh, it's not your spirit against the flesh. It's God's spirit against the flesh. And so for true freedom to be found, one must step out of the ring and allow the spirit to enter. One must stop trying to will yourself to salvation and allow the spirit to save you. That is the only way the flesh is dealt with. Because it's the spirit who tells you who you are. And it is the spirit who empowers you to do. Michael Parsons, he's a Christian ethicist and philosopher, he says this, the spirit himself is the link between the indicative and the imperative of Christian experience. In other words, in order to really believe that you are who you are, that is the witness of the spirit. It's by the spirit's witness we can cry, Abba, Father. Have you ever taught to dwell on that for a moment? That while we can maybe rationalize and reason a way to God that ultimately won't convince us unless the spirit utters that we are his children. Have you ever talked to, to think about that moment that your very faith in God is actually a byproduct of his activity in you? That the very fact you could come up here every Sunday and open your hands and worship and sing those things about God with utter confidence is because the spirit is witnessing to you that that is a reality. And when faced with that reality, what can the flesh do but back off? Because what the Spirit witnesses to you and lets your flesh know is that, yes, we know you still exist. And yes, we know we're awaiting the fullness of Christ and his glory and his redemption. But even right now, in the middle, between the times, while we're still wrestling, while temptation is still present, this person no longer belongs to you. That is how the flesh is ultimately put to death. When we allow the spirit to enter in and declare who we are, and then rather than trying on our own to do, allow him to work in and through us. Often, if you've been in our church long enough, we talk a lot about abiding and being. There's that old you know, kind of line, right? Like, we're not human doings, we're human beings, right? Our, our ultimate capacity is to be. That doing, action, work is a part, is, flows out of our being. It does not define us. And so if that is a reality we're going to express as a church, that means our, we, our view of sanctification and holiness has to radically shift. It's not a battle you against yourself, you against your flesh. There are no two wolves warring inside you, as much as that's a beautiful analogy to give. What's really on your best day, you're still giving in to the flesh. 
And so what you need is the radical power of the Spirit, God living and breathing inside you to put that thing to death because on your own, it overtakes us all. And so the invitation is simple. You want to deny the flesh? You got to walk in the Spirit. And that, like, that sounds overly simplistic. And that is the radical thing about the gospel. It is very easy to articulate and incredibly difficult to believe and even harder to live out. But that's sort of the point. If there was a 10 steps to doing this thing perfectly, then it probably wouldn't really be worth it. There's something in recognizing that actual sanctification lies outside ourselves that actually makes us believe that it's really possible. Because I'll be honest with you, if sanctification were up to me, if I had to wrestle with my own flesh, I would have quit this thing a long time ago. I don't have the, the strength to muster to resist. On my best day, I, I listen to my worst devils. And while we can still argue that people are still capable of good, what we're not saying is that people can't do good things, it's just that for most, of the, most part, even when we do good things, there's something tinged there. Ever done a good thing for a wrong reason? Ever got someone something and reminded it of them later? What's that? That's the flesh. That's playing tit for tat. That's not dying to self and being self-giving, sacrificial. How do you resist the urge to rub your good deed in someone's face? Well, it's the spirit of God. If you say, this is God working in me, like Paul says, this is not I, but Christ in me, then how can you boast? Worship team, come join me, because there's not a lot, not a lot left to say in terms of theology. Now it's actually about living it. And so, here's how I want to end. Brief recap. Our flesh is, th is that fallen bit of us that wants to rebel against God. The law is attractive because it seems to promise to beat the flesh into submission. The reality is the more we try to do and will ourselves to be quote-unquote good, it's ironically, the far, farther we fall into the flesh. And so what's the answer? To walk in step with the Spirit. To allow our being to precede our doing, and not our doing to dictate our being. To recognize that real change is a product of God's own activity in us. And that if we truly want to be the people he's called us to be, which is people free from the, uh, we don't talk about this enough, like Christ has, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Any yoke, whether it's the yoke of the law or the yoke of your flesh or the yoke of sin or the yoke of death or the yoke of past pain or the yoke, yoke of scars, all these things you have been set free from, that is an objective reality for the believer. What remains is to walk in it. You know, 
I remember um, it's Father's Day. I grew up going to Puerto Rico almost every year with my grandfather, um, who, after living in Brooklyn for a little bit, he had moved back with his wife. And he used to have like this garden. And it's like this little garden. If you ever go to Puerto Rico, right? You have all like these mostly one one story houses, and his was like gated off because you know the neighborhood was shifted in terms of safety and behind all these gates was a little garden had like these mango trees all this other cool stuff and I remember one of my earliest memories is him taking me back there and kind of it was like the Lion King moment like you know everything in the sunset is yours right like and he was and he was basically telling me hey listen if you ever want to come back here and rip a mango off the tree you're good like, this is mine, it's yours. You are, you're, 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 you're the son of my daughter. This belongs to you. And I remember as a young boy being incredibly scared to go back and rip a mango off the tree. Because it, it, it just seemed, there seemed still to be some boundaries of like, but this is his and he worked really hard for this and like, what if I mess it up? What if I pull too many mangoes off? Now the tree's dead. Like, you know all these things you think about as a kid. And as I got older, I, I began to realize the reality was I was his grandson and that in reality, everything he had belonged to me. And so I got a little confident. You pick one, two... And then it got to the point where, like, as I was older, a teenager, and we would go to Puerto Rico to visit him, I didn't even ask. I, he didn't even, the, the gate was already open, and you just go in and enjoy. And that's what it's like to walk in the Spirit, to recognize that you are already who God has declared you to be, not because of you, but because Jesus has already accomplished it. And so now your only job as a Christian is to actually be who you are. And in, in a culture that says, be, who you, be whoever you want to be, I'm just encouraging you, be who God wants you to be. Which is someone who is free from the flesh. Someone who is free and redeemed and utterly set free. And let that thing motivate you to put to death those things. Don't try to will it. Don't try to work it. Don't try to add another steps. I know we love, I, I'm, a big, I'm the discipleship pastor. I'm a big fan of practices, okay? I'm a big fan of, of rhythms of prayer and reading scripture daily. But if, if you begin to equate those things as that's, that's ultimately what's going to do it for you, it's going to be really frustrating. There's a difference between grace and means of grace. The grace comes from God. The scripture reading, the prayer, even the community piece, that's all just a tool. It's all just a means for grace to flow and work itself out in your life. But if you ultimately think those things in and of themselves will do the work, it will fail you like the law failed the Galatians. And so for those of you, you're, you're, you're frustrated with your sanctification, maybe it's time to readjust where that source is coming from. And so, prayer team, if you don't mind coming up here, we're going to do some response because I said the time for theology was wrapping up. And then I went on another tangent, so you know. We have two rugs here up front, and the response today is going to be pretty explicit and simple. When I was talking about Paul's theology, right, we talked about the indicative, the imperative. 
that there is what the Holy Spirit does in the face of the flesh is remind us who we are, and then the Holy Spirit then also empowers us for what we need to do. So for some of us struggling with our flesh right now, whether it's a cycle of sin that you just can't break, you've been to therapy, you got the reading plan, you listen to the podcast, you confess it 10 times to your best friend, still doing it, then hear me. Maybe the one thing you're missing is that you're forgetting who you are. And because the reason why you can't surmount this thing, the reason why you can't put this thing to death is because you've forgotten your identity. That you are objectively, true fact, cannot be negotiated with. You are saved and redeemed, sanctified and set free. That is just who you are, point blank period, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But you've forgotten that reality. And the moment of your conversion is now just a distant memory that you don't even think back to anymore. I want you to think back to your baptism. Think back to that moment of yes, that is who you are because of what Christ has done. And if you need to be reminded of that today, and that be the impetus to remind your flesh, I no longer belong to you, but I belong to God, then my right, your left, come up here. And just when you approach the prayer team, say, hey, listen, I need to be reminded of who I am because I've forgotten for a long time and I've tried everything and the flesh is running rampant. There's some of us in here, we know exactly who we are. And the great irony is, despite knowing exactly who we are, we're still stuck in the same stuff. We're having an identity crisis of sorts. We're like, God, I believe in you. I, I, I love you. I believe I'm saved and redeemed, but for some reason it's not taking action in my life. The flesh continues to win out, and I'm trying, God, I'm trying, and that's the problem. You're trying rather than abiding, rather than being, and rather than relying on the activity of the Spirit, the power who, who works for the power to will and to do in you. That's you. You know exactly who you are, but know what you need help with? You need the Spirit to help you just be obedient to what God is calling you to do. You need the Spirit to wage war against the flesh, and you need to put down your fists and get out of the ring and say, Holy Spirit, work on my behalf to overcome this thing. The space is open here for you. And so the worship is going to play behind me, and I'm going to ask you all to stand. If you're tired of having that war in your mind, if you're tired of doing that wrestling match, if you're shocked by the intrusive thoughts you're having and shocked that you're giving in to them despite your years of maybe following Jesus, take advantage of today. I, I don't know what else to say, but take advantage of today. And I'll say this caveat and then close. All that to say, this is, doesn't mean that God doesn't use ordinary things like therapy and mental wellness and practices. He does. Trust me, he does. But we can't separate our minds from our souls. And oftentimes, 
Soul healing precedes mental healing, and sometimes mental healing precedes soul healing, and sometimes it happens both in a moment. So, Father, help us to take advantage of today, for we are tired of the flesh running our lives. We're tired of giving in. We're tired, God. And for the first time, we're saying, tell us who we are and give us the will to do. Amen.